Hey, hi, uh, I am Richard Donner, but you can call me Dick, and you're listening to Superman Movie Minute? Is that right? Did I do it right? Welcome to another exciting episode of Superman 2 Movie Minute, the show that scrutinizes, analyzes, and you'll believe a man can fly his 1980s Superman 2 five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm one of your hosts, Rob Kelly, and joining me on this journey through time and space is... Chris Franklin. Hey, Chris. How's it going, Rob? Things are going very, very well. I'm very excited. We're here to talk about uh, minutes 25 through 30 of Superman 2. They open with a dull day at NASA... And they close with the Phantom Zone villains planning their next move. So uh, as we talked about in the previous episode, of course, where this, these, these minutes leave off, is that we've got uh, Cliff Clavin here uh, mm-hmm. working at NASA. And he's <laughs> talking to his, uh, fellow, his fellow NASA employee. I don't think this guy ever gets named. The actor is Shane Rimmer. Who was seen? He's been seen in a lot of uh, in, uh, Richard Donner movies. He was in the original Superman. He's in Superman Three. He's in Batman Begins. He's mm-hmm. one of the guys dealing with the um, Gotham City water supply. Uh, and I looked through his credits, and he's in a movie called Firestorm. So, oh yeah, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> it's got a lot of got a lot of credits connected to our our universe. So, uh, what do we think of this opening of the idea that like NASA is just it's just like working at a factory, just kind of boring. Yeah, I mean that's what I like. I like the, the like. Does anybody even care anymore? You know, yeah. they've been up there for what forty five days. It's like it's just another day at the office. They're sitting around. They're getting up, getting coffee. They're yawning. They're stretching. I mean, it's it, it really is just a work a day job at, at NASA at, at Houston, apparently. So it's it, I, I do think it's kind of funny, but it I think I guess it kind of grounds it grounds things in in reality, you know, uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, so I. I think it's kind of it's kind of neat. You expect them to be, you know, like this is not the uh, Apollo thirteen uh, mission control by any means. <laughs> of course, they're on the edge of their seat the whole time. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have to figure that. Uh, I mean, of course, if you need to have somebody monitoring the astronauts twenty four seven, of course, what you do. You, you, look, I mean, I don't want to insult anybody that works at NASA. If you work at NASA, you're like genius. You know, so you really have to be to be that level. Nevertheless, I'm imagining if you're working the overnight shift at NASA, like that's not like the A team, right. yeah. maybe. I mean, again, I don't want to insult anybody, but like I'm just trying to imagine, like, okay, well, who has to work in the middle of the night at NASA? It's probably the the, the shift that you right. want. Yeah, probably you probably so. Yeah. <laughs> So again, then, so then we cut up to the moon, and uh, we see one of the astronauts, and he's giving a you know, sort of a play-by-play of what's going on. There's a joke about he's getting engaged to one of the other <laughs> astronauts. Uh, it's a little bit of a homophobic joke, but it's not that bad. It's just more of kind of silly. That actor is played by uh, that actor. I'm sorry, the actor uh, is uh, played by John Morton, um, and uh, the astronaut. I meant to say, I keep saying the actor. The actor is John Morton, and he has a couple of credits that are worth noting. He was yes. in Flash Gordon. I know it's one of your favorites. He was in Cuba, uh, which is another movie by Richard Lester. And, of course, he has another 
very famous genre credit. Yes, I do. He was Dak, Luke's gunner in The Empire Strikes Back. That's right. And, of course, when you think about what happens to John Morton later on in this scene, we realize that as an actor, he is just destined to be crushed inside of (laughs) spaceships. That is is something that happens to him in every movie. Some heavy thing comes down of laying upon his head. It's just, I don't know. He was good at it. Well, according to IMDb, he was also a stand-in, a double for Boba Fett in that movie, too. Oh, I missed that. So at some point, he puts on the Boba Fett armor. So, I mean, that that just upped his cred on the convention circuit. You know, he's Dak and Boba Fett. Oh, (laughs) seriously, yeah. Wow, I did. I missed that entirely. That's really cool. Yeah, I hope he he gets to dine out on that. So that's really cool. So, of course, he's looking out the window and he sees uh, a girl. And uh, I love the shot when he says a girl. Then they cut to NASA and the the Shane Rimmer guy is like, looks around. He's like, did anybody else hear that? And it's like, nobody's paying attention. They're all getting their coffee. They're all reading the magazine. I love that cutaway of just like, wait, wait, what did I just hear? I thought that was really nice. Yeah. And and the look on his face is just kind of like, just the stupefied, like this hangdog look. It's just, which I mean, you know, uh, you know, and you got to figure if you're up on the moon for 45 days, you would kind of start to like, did I just see what I thought I saw? So yeah, it's really, it's put across really well. Yeah, and I like I like the, the the way it shot of Ursa flows into the window. It's very eerie. I like the uh, the the, the mm-hmm. music sting that the villains have, like their theme with that kind of like that weird kind of percussive thing. It, it's very eerie and it's really strange. And I just I like how you know. I mean, obviously there's sound up on here because you have to have sound. I mean, there's no sound in right. the moon, there's no sound in outer space, but you have to have some. But I like how kind of quiet it is. But they just sort of seem they're kind of just like floating. And I would imagine that if you're on the moon and you see somebody, I mean, Superman exists in this world, so they know Superman exists. They know there are at least there's at least somebody that can do this thing. But nevertheless, it'd be really, really scary to see somebody just sort of fly by your <laughs> fly by your your ship. Be like, what? Right. Am I I, at? Uh, one thing I wanted to point out while while we're on the or we see the you know the lunar lander and there's kind of a long shot. We see the other astronauts, we, the ones on the rover, and the one doing the moonwalk in that shot. It's real quick, but in that shot, I don't think they've got any kind of wires rigged to the actor. It looks like he's trying to simulate doing a moonwalk just by walking. It's like he's like trying to sneak up on something. It's <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, it was probably one of those things that you never would have noticed before the advent of you know HD clarity. You know, so <laughs> right, right, right. I'm sure Richard Lester told everybody, walk real slow. Walk like it's kind of harder to do. And well, you gotta go, yeah, let's, well, that's a question I had for you, and I, I, don't, I know we don't want to do this every single time, but we can't help it. Is this, is this a Donner scene or a Lester scene? Because I, 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 I kind of thought that maybe this was a Donner scene just by the way that Terrence Stamp looks later in the footage. He doesn't have the long hair with the curled up in the back because in the, all the Lester scenes is – his hair slicked back, but he's got it's like curling up right around the base of his neck. So, oh, I never noticed yeah. that. Interesting. Uh, yeah, hmm. you know, I don't know. I mean, this certainly could be a Donner sequence because this was, I think, always in the, the right. plot of the movie. Was always that the, the, we're going to come to the moon and whatever. So, yeah, you're right. It could be. I don't know. I mean, again, it's Shane, it's hard it's hard to know because like Shane Rimmer is usually a guy you see in. In Donner movies, but of course he was in Richard Lester's Superman three right. as well. So it's, he's he 
goes across both directors. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. We'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, so anyway, uh, no, we see another astronaut. This is the one that Ursa meets. Now, I, had to t- I could not find credit for this guy. Uh, I don't know why. He gets a line. He gets, uh, you know, he's where she says, uh, what kind of, uh, and he says, I'm just a man. And she's yeah. a man. And then he gets, uh, she reaches for his his patch, which is, again, the beginning of a little bit of a running thing with Ursa, that she likes these symbols of authority. Uh, of some, Or maybe not authority, but some sort of just symbols of belonging or something. And she's obsessed with them. And then later we'll see her as she affixes them to her tunic. Throughout the movie, which is a fun little detail. And then she reaches for him and he tries to run away and then she flies over him and then rips it off. And that causes his suit to inflate. And, you know, I know, Chris, you probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the worst ways to die. Uh, (laughs) But I always figure to me, and I've seen this in a couple of movies, being thrown into the endless void of space to me seems just utterly beyond terrifying. Just the, the the loneliness. I mean, he wouldn't last long, especially this guy, because his oxygen is running out. So he'll probably asphyxiate in a minute or two. But just the idea of sort of floating into space all by yourself and it sounds that's just like blood. Yeah, blood it's, it's really it's really quite frightening. But the, the sad part is, is, as a kid. And I feel kind of bad for this. I kind of thought it was funny that he puffed up and that she kicked him. You know, because as a kid, you think, oh, look, his suit puffed up, you know, as a little kid. But it's like, you know, you don't think about, well, gee, the guy just not only did he asphyxiate, he knew he was asphyxiating. And, you know, and then, like you said, he's floating away from the moon out into the void. And so it's like it's really chilling. I mean, it just I mean, this uh, we'll get into it. But this this whole sequence just paints just how just cruel these these guys are i mean there's nothing redeeming about these these folks at all and i i will say one thing the whole thing with ursa and her patches it makes me think was she like kicked out of the kryptonian equivalent of the girl scouts and uh <laughs> damn it she's gonna get those badges and patches you know <laughs> i never thought of that but that makes total sense you could see that i mean they 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 hint in the opening crawl of the first movie that obviously Krypton is a relatively crime-free mm-hmm. place. Uh, I mean, you could argue why is it crime-free? Maybe because everybody has been sort of pushed by the government into like kind of obedience. So that's got its own darker cast. But you do get the sense that that these these people are really outliers in Kryptonian society. And so yeah, maybe Ursa was always like one of those cruel little kids, and everybody was like, "What the hell is wrong with Ursa? What is wrong with her?" So yeah, she never got to be a Girl Scout. She never got to go to the high school Kryptonian prom or anything like that because she was just so mean. And so now she's like, oh, I belong to every club because right. I can just take it. You know, I can, I can just, I can forcibly be a member. I mean, she's obsessed. I mean, what would that patch have any meaning to her at all? You know, other than there's some sort of deep seated insecurity that she's got. And of course, if she has to kill somebody to do it, she's going to do it. And you're right. The, him, the suit blowing up is kind of comical because it just looks funny that he inflates to that size. Uh, so I can see as a kid, yeah, you're a little like, oh, this is sort of funny. But then to me, the part that makes it so awful is when we get the reverse shot and it's sort of from the astronaut's mm-hmm. point of view and we see Ursa get further and further away as he fades off into space like that. I, I love that shot. I mean, again, I don't know if that's Lester or Don or whoever it was. I think it's great. I love that POV. I think that's a really yeah, great it's moment. Really, yeah, it's really sharp. Yeah. And so and there's a scene like that and not to give anything away, but in the movie Gravity – with George Clooney and uh, and Sandra Bullock, there's a scene where somebody floats out into space to die, and 
I saw that movie in the theater, and the screen was really big. And I was yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> it's awful. I don't know. Just, the idea, again, you wouldn't last long, but just the thought that your body will never be recovered. No one will ever know what happened yeah. to you because, you know, unless, unless maybe, you know, they eventually send Superman out to get the I, body. You know, <laughs> like Superman, go find yeah. that astronaut or something. Yeah, click. Clean so, up your uh, mess. Then, Clean up your mess, oh, Superman. Ahead, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the next astronaut we meet is Boris, the aforementioned Boris, played by Jim Dowdle. And he has a similar credit to John Morton in that he was in Empire Strikes Back as well, playing one of the Bespin guards. So, you know, boy, if you were in one of those movies, you were in the other one. Right, yeah, I mean, it's just you were you were there at – at uh, Pinewood and Elstree, and and yeah, you were just uh, yeah, and we're, we're going to get some more people that were in the Star Wars films uh, in Superman too as well. But I, I looked this guy at IMDb up; he does stunt work uh, primarily. He's still doing stunt work, and he's seventy-one years old. <laughs> wow! <laughs> we could we should all be so lucky that we're in in good enough shape to do stunt work at seventy-one years old. <laughs> Seriously, man, his, he must have some strong bones that he can throw. I mean, he's probably not doing anything really crazy, probably driving around and stuff. But still, man, 71, most people are retired by that point, let alone doing stunt work, which is like the most badass right. thing out there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Good for him. Wow. So he gets the one line where he says, Nyet, to, to Zod, and Zod's talking to him. Uh, and then, then they he, again, he gets picked up and kicked, and uh, his air hose gets pulled mm. out. Uh, by Zod, uh, there's a little bit of a of a tell that obviously we're in a we're not on the moon because the hose just falls to the ground. Oh yeah, <laughs> as if it would on Earth. You know, it doesn't it doesn't float there for a second, but not a big deal. Still, you're still terrified of the idea that Zod. Just the way this the way the Zod kicks the guy, it's so like humiliating and dignified to just just kick him like again like he's these these villains of. Just treat these people like and, they, and, he, and he refers to him as a primitive creature. It's like, have you looked in the mirror, Zod? Yeah. He looks just like you. I mean, it's like yeah. it just goes to how superior Zod feels to you know. I mean, I'm sure he felt that way to just about everybody on Krypton anyway. And then you know to come to a different uh, you know uh, encounter aliens from a different planet. Well, of course they're beneath not only Kryptonians but especially him. You know because he's Zod. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Yeah, we all know. He's one letter off from God. We know that. So uh, so the next, uh, we've got the one astronaut left. And there was just something I never noticed before. Uh, I don't know how I missed it because I've seen the movie a bunch of times. But when the little Mars rover comes r- rumbling into the frame, that's Nan mm-hmm. is driving yeah. that. I've never noticed that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, of course, who else was driving it? Because all the other astronauts are dead. But there's something I just never noticed that he's just dri- – he's like he's like dune bugging it. Like he's just yeah. having fun. Which is really, really scary considering they're they're murdering everybody. But I, well, not I never only that, that, he's got Zod like in the back, like he's on parade. It's like he's it's it's, <laughs> it's like he's literally like you know Zod's like I am I am the master of all I survey. Fly, you know, drive me around this planet. You know, and it's just like you know, I mean, it's just like <laughs> wow. You know, it's like they're already he's already sitting in his throne more or less. You know, and he they, he just sits there while Nan goes to town on the the lander and starts tearing it apart, you know? So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the marshal of this year's Thanksgiving day parade. General Zod. Yeah. Ticker tape flying. Yeah. And it really is quite, it's just the, the way that non regards everything as like a toy. I mean, of course, Jack O'Halloran never gets any lines in this movie other than some grunts. 
here and there and some some kind of sort of thing. Uh, but I mean, that's again, they're giving a little bit of him a characterization is that he's he's like Lenny from Of Mice of Men and everything is a toy. Everything is something to just play with. Uh, and you know, not not treating it with any sort of respect or reverence. And then, of course, they get up to the final uh, astronaut, and they just decide to crush him to death. They don't they don't talk to him. They don't ask him anything. They don't try and get any information. They just decide to crush him to death. And it's a relatively slow death, as the poor guy knows what's happening to him, and you hear him say, "Oh God, oh no!" as as he's trying to communicate to Houston. And you know, they all the other two just stand around and watch Non just crush this thing and again it's a horrible slow painful death i mean again this is a kid's movie it's rated pg and i mean it's bloodless but nevertheless it's a pretty pretty gruesome series of deaths that the villains dole out yeah i mean it's one of those things as a kid you i mean you know that they're killing them but at the same time you don't really think about the astronauts as characters like like as people you think of them as just well, this is you know this is who they've run up against and this is what they're going to do. But as you get older and you watch a movie like this, you realize, yeah, like you said, it's not gory. It's not you know they they don't overly dramatize it to the point where it's completely from the POV of the astronaut and it's like turns into a horror movie or anything. But it's still pretty horrifying that these three beings just show up and for no reason other than just curiosity and and cruelty just murder them. I mean, they just like to see, yep. well, if I do this to you, it'll probably kill you. Well, yeah, well, yeah, it did. Good. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> yep. Yep. it's awful. It's really, I mean, it just, it shows just how deplorable these, uh, these, these people are. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's why you got to put them in the phantom zone. Cause you know, as established, if you let them out, I mean that we all have our feelings about that one issue of Superman that mm-hmm. John Byrne did where the three phantom zone villains got out and Superman was like, look, you know, I don't kill people, but uh, you have already slaughtered millions of people, and you have told me that if you ever get out again, you're going to do it again. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to murder the three of you right now. I mean, there is something too about at least like in some weird way, Zod is being very honest. He's like, "Look, if I'm out, I'm slaughtering people. That's just right. the way it's going to work." Uh, and there's something very terrifying about that. And again, it's you have to remember this is this is a, this is meant for children. Right. This movie. I saw this movie when I was nine. Uh, and, and I was not even the youngest person there. And nevertheless, they don't they don't shy away from it. And so I I like all that. I mean, it's kind of dark and it's gritty. And then then we get to the scene of of again Shane Rimmer talking to Cliff Clavin, where he's saying, "What's a girl?" And he says, "I I thought he said curl. What's a curl? Isn't that a comet with an east west trajectory?" And Cliff Clavin says something. How do I know? I was yeah. in high school. <laughs> and then the, the little bit of a gag there. And I you know I. As I watch the scene as an adult, so-called adult, I'm like, wouldn't wouldn't there be more panic going on if you've lost touch with the the astronauts at that point? I know it's three in the morning and everybody's half asleep, but I would think losing touch with the astronaut. I mean, maybe maybe that happens all the time. Yeah, we just don't hear about it. But I I would think there would be more people scurrying about at that point. But I don't know. Maybe maybe that's that scene is just before. Yeah, I I get the feeling when John Ratzenberger, uh, which we keep keep calling Cliff Clavin, but John Ratzenberger, uh, 
I don't think they give him a name. I don't no, know his name no. in the movie. So I think he's just right, right. Well, when John Ratzenberger walks back up and he's like, "What's up?" and he's like, "Well, I lost he's I lost contact with him," and he's like, "So." So I, I get the impression that yeah. it happens a lot, you know, when they, they like they I guess they so. get that kind of comes back on and then they you know goes back out again. So the urgency hasn't quite kicked in yet. It will in a few minutes, I'm sure. Yeah, I guess Shane, and Shane Rimmer's like he says like yeah. well, like really, you know, like he's kind of like trying to put like no, this isn't this is maybe beyond a little, you know, beyond the usual uh, shorts. This is something really really bad going on. So then we cut back to the moon. And we see Ursa talking about we have powers beyond reason here. And she's very excited. And Sarah Douglas doesn't, you know, neither one, uh, Sarah Douglas or Jack O'Halloran, get a whole lot to do in this movie in terms of characterization. This movie really does belong to Terrence's mm-hmm. stamp. Uh, you might even say he has his stamp all <laughs> over it. Uh, but there is uh, there's something about the costuming I think I love the eye makeup that Ursa has. It makes her look more dramatic. She looks a little Avira-y. Yeah. Uh, but there's something about her face. Her face is very expressive. And when she talks about, you know, we have powers beyond reason here and what he yeah. did. You know, and it's like she's she's at the same – she's bewildered. But she's I, – I don't know. I think she's also like a little turned oh, yeah. on. You know? <laughs> like she's yeah. kind of like, this is awesome. I am going to be able to kill – Lots of people, and she's kind of excited about it. And you know, there's something where an actor has a quality that you can't quite put your finger on that another actor wouldn't be able to convey in the same way. And I think she really does make the most of the little dialogue she's given. There's something about the way she says it really does suggest that she is like, I am about to enter the best phase of my yeah. life. Yeah, <laughs> like this is well, really there, there's, awful. There's definitely this evil dominatrix side to to Ursa. Yes. I mean, the out, the outfit, yes. course, kind of points to that too. The leather and and but yes. but I mean, in her voice, her smoky voice, it's like a man, you know, that type of thing. You know, it's a and I mean, yeah, she's, yeah. You know, and later, <laughs> I mean, later in the movie when she's like Superman, you know, that type of thing. I mean, she is having a ball, and she has got this. Yep. You know, she is. She, of course, she's very attractive, but it's like, you know, she's like, oh, good. Yes. She's the type of woman you like, do stay, stay away from her, man. Because <laughs> she, she, she looks good, yep. but oh my God, she would kill you. And even if she wasn't a Kryptonian, I still think she'd kill you. You know? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she, yeah. she really it, fleshes really that role out. You're right, beyond what's on the script, just with, she took that character and ran with it. And she, she does a great job with yep. it. Right. I mean, because we've got Zod is plotting. I mean, he's already moved on to the next thing. You know, she's just more like, this is great. I'm going to get to kill a bunch of people. And he is kind of like literally stroking his chin going, "Mm, "Okay, well, all right. Well, this this is clearly not the big planet because there's nobody here. We've already killed everybody here. And of course, Nan is only worried about the flags. He's carrying around the U.S. and Russian (laughs) flags like a moron carrying these things around for no good reason. But I, I I again, it's it's subtle and I don't want to make too much of it. But it's – I like that we have three distinct POVs here is that Zod is the tactician. He's the one thinking what's the next thing we got to do. She's just more like this is great. I can't wait till we find a bigger group of people for me to murder. And Nan is just like, oh, look at the bright, yeah. shiny stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's good. That, speaking of bright, shiny stuff, did you notice that Zod says – the closer we come to an atmosphere with only one sun, a yellow sun, and I'm like, when did Krypton yes. have two suns? <laughs> I know. Is this tattoo? What is this Tatooine? What's going on? Yeah. 
But, I mean, they get the yellow sun thing in there. It's like, you know, get the molecular density and all that stuff. So that's cool. But it's like, uh, I think they just showed Krypton to have one sun in the first movie, I'm pretty sure. It's, it's actually what blows up and blows the planet up in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we know that they're f- fudging a little with the histories of this of this movie and Krypton because, of course, in this movie, Jor-El didn't send them to the Phantom Zone. Well, yeah, right. Them. That's true. That's true. <laughs> So, but, but so anyway, yeah, that's the, and that's the end of, uh, that's the end of minute 20, uh, 20, basically minute 30 at this point where we've got the, the three Phantom Zone villains sitting there and they're plotting and they're going to head to the planet Houston. So it's all going to, they're going to wreak more destruction there. So, uh, is there anything else we want to say about these five minutes? I think we covered it all pretty well. Yeah. I can't wait to see uh, them kill a bunch of more people because it's fun. Uh, They really, they're good at it and they're, they're fun to watch. Uh, and so, yeah, well, that is going to do it for this episode of Superman 2 Movie Minute. Uh, Chris and I, of course, you can find all of our shows over on our network, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And, of course, uh, if you want to check out more Movies by Minutes shows, go to moviesbyminutes.com. We have that link in the show notes as well. So I think that is going to do it. So everybody come back next week as the adventure continues with Superman 2 Movie Bye. Minute. Bye. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again.